Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Anthropology channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Yadon Lee, a PhD student in anthropology at Tulane University. Since Mary Douglas wrote her seminal articles about the dietary laws and social order, food and how to cook, consume and share food has been examined by anthropologists for a long time. On the other side, we witness business anthropology and the anthropology of labor as two rising fields in our discipline. If you want to find an ethnography being at the intersection of the three fields above, you will be interested in our today's podcast. We will discuss a new book about free food programs in the tech industry. And I'm very happy to have its author, Dr. Jesse Dot, to our today's podcast. Thank you for coming today, Jesse. Yeah, no problem. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And also, I want to thank you for producing such an interesting and insightful book. Uh, this new book, Feeding the Hustle, Free Food and Care Inside the Tech Industry, is published by Lexington Books in 2022. About its author, Dr. Jesse Dodd is a social anthropologist now working in the hotel industry, and his academic interests are the anthropology of work, food, care, and death. So before we delve into your book, I think, um, Jesse, you are a very special guest speaker to our anthropology channel, because you actually, I would say, move back and forth between the academia and the industry. So I think your personal experience also reflects in your academic interest and this book project. So Jesse, could you please introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? For example, what brought you to anthropology and to the tech industry? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Jesse Dart. I did my PhD at the University of Sydney in Australia. And um, yeah, before that, I studied uh, gastronomy and food in Italy. And I also did my master's in Australia in applied anthropology. And I think um, what you're talking about there is the applied part, because what I really like doing is taking anthropological ideas and theories and then placing them in the business world or in into real life uh, situations instead of theorizing about um, just ideas about places um, and helping people solve problems. So for me, anthropology really went back to my first one of my first long term study broad trips, and that was to Africa, South Africa, and Mozambique when I was an undergrad. And after that trip, coming back, um, spending six, six months down there, I thought something just kind of ringed a bell with anthropology. I've always been interested in other cultures and traveling and other places. Um, always been a photographer as well. And anthropology and photography kind of go hand in hand. I feel like they sort of complement each other. So um, yeah, so anthropology just kind of fell into my lap. It kind of ticked a lot of boxes for me, so to speak, in the academic world because I could combine some of my other interests with it fairly easily. I like to say that anthropology kind of begs, borrows, and steals from other disciplines. Um, we'll take something from history or something from economics or something from sociology or something from biology and kind of like melt mold it into whatever it is that we are thinking about at, at any certain time. So yeah. Fascinating. That, Fascinating. yeah. Go ahead. Please go ahead. 
No, that's that's about it. Um, and you're right. Yeah, I bounced between. You know, when I was finishing my PhD, I started doing UX research um, for a small consultancy in Italy, and then uh, from there moved over here to the U.S. and and did a short uh, one year long research project uh, with Arizona State University, and then after that ended, yeah, found my way into the into the private sector and got hired by Hyatt Hotels, where I'm currently the senior researcher um, on the digital team. And yeah, as I was telling you, you know, before we started, um, hotels are a really fascinating space because- Exactly. Yeah, I can talk more more about that later, but um, well, yeah. Looking forward to it. And yeah, definitely. I think anthropology is a very interesting discipline because sometimes you feel and you actually preserve this feeling it actually is embedded in your life in other aspects is interconnected. So I think you provide with us a very fascinating journey. So I think being an observer in the tech industry and being an academic with extensive experience outside academia is actually a very anthropological thing. So it's not hard to understand why it is you writing this interesting book about <laughs> food projects, um, you know, uh, food programs in the tech industry. But even so, could you let us know what exactly inspired you to do this project about free food in the tech industry? I believe it is based on your PhD research, right? Yeah, it is based on my PhD research. Um, hopefully it's more interesting than reading the dissertation. <laughs> but um I was uh, looking for an idea, you know, to do my PhD, and I had just finished this. I'd been working in the wine industry and was thinking about food and and this sort of thing. I happened to read a couple of articles online, just news articles about these crazy perks that tech companies are giving employees, and one of those was free food. And I was like, well, that's really weird. I I found it really strange, um, you know, that they were just getting free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, really high quality food, usually um, at the same time at the workplace. And that's not something I had ever had experience with. I always had to take my own lunch wherever I worked, right? Where you go out and get something. And um, so for me, it just seemed like a really interesting concept. And then I tried to tie that back. You know, I was thinking, how can this be anthropological? And I think, you you know, later we might talk about gifting and stuff like that a little bit, but that was sort of really what I hooked onto was just this idea that, employees were getting free things, but um, what were they giving back in return? Um, how was, like, I, I just started thinking about it as a gift instead of as a perk. It's just a change in terminology, really, right? Um, and, like, what does that mean for this in relationship that you build between employees and employers? Um, yeah, and so I just found it to be kind of like a very modern phenomenon that nobody had really thought much about, apart from writing some, you know, stories and newspapers and stuff about how cool it was but that's not really an investigation it's just saying like hey these companies offer cool stuff at work um you should work for them but um <laughs> there is more to the story i thought well so interesting i think it's just fascinating i think i believe the stories behind this book is may, might be far more interesting far more interesting than the book itself although the book itself is already very interesting so let's talk about your fascinating food work so you mentioned in chapter one that you had worked in the tech industry in the us and also in the uk before this book project so how did you do your food work for this project and how did previous work experiences influence your positionality in the field and your field work strategy yeah field work was the challenging part of this because you know i wanted to go and spend time in these office spaces of these companies and companies are really resistant to letting outsiders in for any period of time and especially researchers you know they're very curious about where you're going to find and usually you know they're just yeah not very interested in, in letting outsiders in so the biggest challenge was finding companies that were okay with me coming and spending time in their office talking to their employees doing some interviews taking some photos eating with them like just sort of hanging out right i mean that's what field work really is it's just kind of hanging out and seeing what's going on um you know i read this great quote one time that was you know something like i'm probably going to miss misquote it but um like anthropology is basically just saying like what are these people doing over here uh, like who are they and what are they doing and so i really just wanted to do that so i started sending out some emails i started 
really with LinkedIn uh, was a great resource. I started building out my LinkedIn profile. I started making connections with people who were working in these companies, um, trying to find the, the gatekeeper, basically, who would say, yes, you can come or find the right person who would at least talk to me on a Zoom call or a phone call or an email. And um, I got a lot of rejections. And I almost to the point where I was going to have to do a different project because I just couldn't get access to any of these offices. Um, but eventually, you know, after months, literally months of, of trying to find the right place, um, two companies were willing to let me come and see what they were up to. And, um, in the book, I've, I've kept them, you know, uh, anonymous and I'll continue to do that because I think my thesis is still under embargo at the university of Sydney um because of the ndas that i had to sign in order to go to these companies but all that to say is that um yeah two companies were like yes this is fine we're totally into this um you can come hang out um you can eat with us um you can talk to employees you can take photos you just have to sign all of this legal paperwork first and <laughs> and uh then you're fine so that was really the beginning of the field work and then you know when i actually left sydney uni and went out to do the field work. I started in London and I went to the two offices in London of uh, both American companies. And yeah, I just showed up like I was an employee. I started showing up when they showed up. I started eating lunch with them. Um, I started, you know, I had a work desk there. I, um, I even got to the point where like I was there so often and like on such a work schedule that I remember one day I wasn't feeling well and I emailed the office manager and I said I'm just letting you know I'm not going to come into the office today and she wrote back to me that's fine but you don't actually work here <laughs> so it got I really got ingrained in these spaces and you know I became friends with these people and I would go out to the pub with them after work and I would um, eat lunch with them in the office with the food I got it was a great perk for a student because I got all my lunches sort of paid for somehow by the companies that I was, in, you know, inside. And um, so I spent time in this first company and then time in the second company in London. And then I wanted to see what was going on in their head offices or in larger offices. So I went to San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and spent time in their head offices there, um, which had a lot more people, a lot more floors and space and stuff going on and um, tried to you know, see if there was anything different between these satellite offices or or the head offices and what was going on with food and like how were, how were, you know, cultural differences at play and the way that people approach these perks and sort of, this is when that whole idea of like work culture came to mind because what I realized was that work cultures between different countries are very different. Nine to five is thought about in a different way um, in England than it is thought about in Silicon Valley, et cetera. So um, yeah, so fieldwork, I think for a lot of students and a lot of PhD researchers is really the most challenging aspect. You know, getting access is hard sometimes. Getting access to a village or getting access to a country or getting access to a company or an office space is all, you know, yeah. Complicated. Just, yeah, it's complicated, right? Um, exactly. Doing a PhD, you know, any anthropology is going to have to deal with access. And there's so many articles and books that have been written about, you know, gaining access and gaining trust of those, of your confidants and of your participants in those places. So that was the other thing is that, you know, I, I showed up, but then I had to build rapport with all these people. And I had to show them that, like, I wasn't there as a spy. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I wasn't, you know, reporting on their work habits or I wasn't counting how many cookies they were eating or I wasn't like, you know, reporting back to the head office about something. So I really had to gain the trust of the people in the office. And the best way to gain trust, in my opinion, is to share a meal with somebody. And that's what I did from day one. I just started eating lunch with them. And um, that just opened so many doors and so many opportunities to have further conversations. Exactly, exactly. I think, yeah, it's super interesting. And I think it's like doing an ethnography. It's the situation is not so different from the, the you know, the, the period of, of Malinowski doing, a, you know, field work among 
you know, islanders. And nowadays you do your food work. You did your food work in the tech industry, in the offices. But actually sometimes the conundrum, the difficulty you meet are basically the same. So it's very interesting to see these connections. Yeah. So and let's talk about the importance of food perks in the tech industry. So actually my partner, she's working in a tech company and based on her everyday experience and narrative to me, I know free food really matters for many employers and employees in the tech industry. Yeah. So some people are loaded to work at home, but actually they choose to go to the office for food. So I think I also observed similar things in your observations. You mentioned several times that some employees even choose companies based on the food provided. So is it really common among employees and from the perspective of employees and employers in the tech industry, how important food perks are? I'm very curious about it. So I will preface this by saying all my research was done before COVID. Um, And I think... COVID changed a lot of these policies in tech companies about free food and a lot of, because people were sent home, right? So a lot of those kitchens were shut down or closed or whatnot. So I, I think that since COVID, some of this has changed, but so what, what I'm, what I'm speaking to here is what I observed pre-COVID um, within these spaces. And at that time, um, in the tech industry, specifically free food was an enormous perk. It was a draw for people because no other industry that I could identify apart from the restaurant industry, which I think we might talk about in a while, um, was providing meals for their employees. Um, that being said, there are some outlier examples where that was the case. Um, for example, uh, executive dining rooms at banks or insurance companies or sort of, you know, things like that were common and might still exist. Um, but that was not necessarily the same thing that I was thinking about. Um, there have been, you know, cases where in, you know, towns like Hershey, Pennsylvania, or sort of employer funded towns that were built by an employer, um, for, where certain perks were given to those employees from the company. Again, that's something different. That's not really what I was thinking about. So for me, the tech industry was an outlier. It was giving people perks that no other industry was providing. And in fact, some industries were starting to copy the tech industry in terms of perks because they wanted some of the same workers, right? So advertising, for example, they started doing things like putting ping pong tables and their officer having beer and stuff available. Again, like sort of perks, light, light perks, I would say. Um, it all kind of started with Google and uh, employee number, what, it was employee number 10, I can't remember exactly from from the text, but um, was a chef, hired a chef to start cooking for their employees. Um, that changed everything uh, in the tech industry, really. And from that moment on, you know, food became synonymous with with work for tech, tech, tech employees. I will say that not all tech companies um, give free food. Mm-hmm. Uh, some do subsidized meals. Um, some of them just have normal places to eat that you have to pay for. Um, so the whole concept for me was finding companies that, that everything was free. There was nothing, there's no monetary, uh, payment attached to that. Um, so yeah, I can't, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, yeah. So Perks were incredibly important to attract the right people, to attract the right um, people they needed in order to grow. But they were also incredibly important because these companies had really, uh, the ideas for growth were just really heavy. They needed to grow really quickly. They needed to build stuff really fast that meant long hours. That means that you don't need to go home. They want to, if they can keep you there longer, um, then you can work longer Then that growth factor can, you know, mm-hmm. they can achieve that sort of extreme amount of growth that they want to make. And um, yeah, I think so- this is the so-called work culture you mentioned in your book, right? Mm-hmm. Working longer hours. Yeah. And- you know, I think like the colloquial word is the hustle. You know, everybody thinks that you need to hustle on this idea of the hustle culture of like, you know, just growth without thought really is mm-hmm. um, something that I think without some of these perks wouldn't have been possible. So exactly. I think it indeed, a, you know, a, a, a culture demanding longer working hours in the tech industry and it's 
gradually expand into all the industry. So basically, specifically, how do food programs achieve this goal for these companies? They just mean you don't have to leave. You can show up and eat breakfast, and then you can eat lunch, and then you can eat dinner. And what I found observing people and just being in those office spaces is that even if you were allowed an hour for lunch, nobody ever took it. Um, if you, um, you know, you should. So I'll give an example of somebody who would show up um, in the morning. They would go to the gym at work. Then they would eat breakfast at work. Then they would work. Then they would eat lunch at work. Then they would work more. And then some of them would say, "Okay, well, dinner is served at six p.m., so I'll just stay till six. Then I'll eat dinner at work, and then I'll go home." Um, that's a lot of time spent in the office, right? And whether or not all that time is productive or not is a different question. But um, they're able to capture people's attention <laughs> for a longer period of time by saying, oh, you can save so much money by eating here at the office. And oh, your vegan will cater to that. Your vegetarian will cater to that. You have gluten intolerance, we cater to that. Like whatever thing you need will cater to that. Just stay here, like spend more time here. And um, I think whether that was intentional or not, at the very beginning, um, I'm not sure. I think that it was unintentional, to be honest. But I think that gradually it grew into being this thing where it was sort of a monster and it became a habit. The, the reality of that is that nobody was forced to do that. Nobody was forced to be at the office for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Nobody was forced to stay at their desk or in the, the, the space for this amount of time. But this is where that idea of the gift comes in, right? Like, if I give you something, there's this sense that you need to give me something in return. That's sort of the basic idea of a gift. So I started thinking about this more and more. And I was like, these people are given, being given a lot of stuff for free, right? A lot of drinks and coffee and food and other perks that weren't necessarily food related, but it's all just being given to them for free. And whether consciously or not, that creates a debt in your mind. I think that creates a debt, like you feel indebted to the, to your employer to some extent. So what I decided and, and uncovered and sort of came up with was that the repayment was in time. The repayment was in time spent in the office. And um, that to me, it was sort of like the crux of the whole thing. Really insightful interpretation, I think. Yeah, because I think from Malinowski to Marcel Mauss and to, you know, more contemporary cases, and gift has long been a very crucial subject in anthropological research. And normally we will think gift actually build social bonds and connections, but actually it also created death and dominations. It's about power. So yeah, I think your interpretation is very creative and uh, both for anthropologists and also for the employers in this industry to have a you know critical perspective. So here I want to share our audiences a very interesting quote from the book, which really impresses me. So here in chapter three, you visit Google and observe their free food program and wrote, there is really isn't any incentive to eat at your desk, she said. This division was more evident at Google than in all the corporate offices I have, I have visited, where dining areas function as workspaces and desks as makeshift dining tables. So I think this detail is super interesting. So what factors actually resulted in this kind of work culture, you know, the, the, you know, the changing position of the workspaces and the dining spaces and how can we understand this example sure um so i'll say you know i, I didn't do long-term field work in google but every now and then i would meet somebody who would say oh yeah my sister works at google or my brother works there or i have a friend that works there do you want to eat lunch with them and they would arrange for me to go to the google office and eat lunch with these people so for me it was a great way to just kind of be a fly on the wall for an afternoon and um, you know, ask them some questions about what was going on there. So that, that was the case of this. You know, I managed to eat in, I think, two or three different Google offices in different parts of the world um, just by making these friendly connections with people who had somebody, knew somebody who worked there. And um, yeah, so I think eating at your desk, you know, if you look on Instagram, there's a hashtag called uh, sad desk lunch, I think is the hashtag. And um, I found that really interesting that, 
I, I couldn't ever figure out if, if it was the food that was sad or if it was the fact of eating at your desk that was sad, right? Because it's never really, uh, put, that's never really put up front. Like, are they sad because it's the food is terrible <laughs> or what? But um, I noticed in, in these spaces that nobody was eating at their desk. And, you know, I think the incentive to not eat at your desk was really that um, if you're in the office for such a long period of time, like a lot of these workers were getting away from your desk was nice. It was nice to go eat with other people. It felt very convivial. And the way that Google designed the dining areas was to inspire people to eat there and eat together and not silo themselves at their desk and eat by themselves. This goes back to like one of the other ideas that, you know, providing food at the office creates this, these moments where people can share ideas across a plate and and at the lunch uh, during lunch and coffee and things like that so they really you know through design um through physical design and spatial design helped encourage people to eat um at tables in the dining area instead of at the desk but um you know so in other places though i did notice that sometimes a laptop would be used as a food tray you know and they would carry their laptop through the food line and they would put their food on their laptop and then take it and sit somewhere and pull the food off and then open their computer and like, I don't know, work while they're eating, even if it was sort of, you know, in a dining space or back at their desk or something. So for me, that really stood out that like, um, you know, at Google, they were really trying to get people to not eat at their desk, to be social, to talk to each other. It's hard to know how many new ideas or like actual, you know, products or anything came out of those conversations that were had around lunch tables and things like that. But I think it's an important part of, you know, just socializing in general in the workplaces is sharing a meal and, and having that sort of space and, and not isolating yourself at the desk. So interesting, interesting. I can definitely see from these examples that different tech companies, you know, they have similar requirements for their food programs, but also they have different working culture and also have, and also these differences in working culture reflects in their food programs. So it's very fascinating. And just stepping back to to something you said earlier, you know, Mm -hmm. about the idea of gift and power structure is that, okay. You know, a lot of something interesting about the tech industry is that a lot of new companies, newish companies, you know, they want to have a flat hierarchy of power in the office so that uh, it's really hard to identify who's in charge. There's nobody with corner offices because it's an open office space and, um, you know, everybody's dressed in very casual clothing. So it's, yeah, increasingly difficult to know who's in charge and who's the boss. And I think that goes against this idea of, um, you know, of the gift where, the company is sort of is an, not a real person, but it's the company that's giving the food to the employees. And it's the company who has sort of this power control over them, not one individual person like you might have in, you know, a smaller village setting or, or something like that. So for me, that power structure was really interesting and like to think about in terms of, you know, they didn't feel indebted to their boss but they felt indebted to the company itself, which was, I mean, just the way that we classify companies and corporations as individuals in the United States is a discussion for another time. But like, if you think about that, um, it's just a really interesting, (laughs) an interesting way to think about, you know, the ways in which um, these power structures exist. um, Exactly. Especially in the workspace, workplace. And, and, and and so we talk about so much about power and domination. I just want to quote another thing in your book, another comparison. So I think in the book, what is fascinating is you actually jump out of the workplace and you actually enter the restaurant industry and do some compar- very interesting, impressive comparison between the tech industry and also the restaurant industry. So you make a comparison between food packs in the tech industry and a family meals offering to their employees in the restaurant industry. I think this is a very interesting comparison because I can see there's a major difference between the two. So the, 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 the difference is whether there is a divide between who prepares food and who consumes food. So that yeah. is to say tech companies tend to conceal food preparation to their 
employees, but for restaurant owners, they prefer to let the employees make the food they will eat together. So is this purposeful and how can we interpret this difference? Yeah, it's definitely on purpose. Um, you know, restaurant employees, it's they take turns cooking for each other often. Um, and they're making food so that they have energy to work the rest of the night while, you know, you have customers and they're eating and stuff. And so it's food for fuel and it's food for, um, yeah, it has a different aspect to it. It's more familial, right? It, it feels more like a family. They call it a family meal. It, it um, yeah, it feels like nourishment uh, that you need, you know, to sustain you. Um, and they do, you know, because they're using the same kitchen to cook this meal that they they cook in for their guests and the customers, it it's not hidden because everybody's sort of participating in it. And um, instead, in the tech industry, you know, a lot of places they have food catered, so it's prepared somewhere offsite. It's brought in and displayed, or they have a prep kitchen where they heat things up and they they display it there. Or, um, you know, Google, some of the larger Google offices and things do have uh you know full-fledged kitchens and restaurants and stuff like that where you have a lot of service workers and things making the meals and stuff but it's still you know there's a barrier between you and them there's walls there's the spaces are different there's um not just you know physical barriers but there's uh an economic barrier between those two groups of people right people who are making food and doing service work versus people who are more white collar workers and doing that type of work so i think in the, in the restaurant industry that barrier is broken down a lot you have dishwashers eating next to the chef eating next to a sommelier eating next to a waiter um everybody's in it together um and yeah i just found those two ideas really striking and that's i don't know i just sort of stumbled across this idea to be honest when i was trying to think of other industries where you know employees were provided a meal and my partner she said uh, what about restaurants it's the whole, whole family meal in restaurants, you know. And then what? after I did some research, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Fernand Adria, who ran El Bulli in Spain for a long time. It was, you know, world-renowned as being one of the best restaurants in the world. And he actually published a book that was recipes of their family meals that they cooked for their employees in the, in the restaurant. Yeah. And so, you know, there's this whole other space of care and I think that that really leads into this idea of care, that they were really caring for each other um, by cooking for each other, because cooking for somebody and providing them a meal is showing them care, right? But when you think about that in the terms of the tech industry, and I know that care is something you have to we have on, on plate for later, but um, is that same type of care still there? I wasn't sure. Like there was a tension, I think, that I couldn't quite yeah. put my finger on. Yeah, as we have already, you know, touched this topic, I think we it, it is appropriate to talk about home and care in tech industry. So, uh, you mentioned several times in your book that tech industry want to create a sense of home and care in a space that is theoretically impossible to be a home. And what yeah. do you mean by theoretically impossible? And if if these companies fail to do so, why? It's theoretically impossible to be a home because. I think a home represents safety and security and um, a sense of belonging. And those things are very uh, difficult to instill in a workplace. The other thing is that since I did this research, some companies have picked up on this idea of home. And there was an article I read a, a couple of years ago that Facebook was building apartments that its workers could rent from the company that would be walkable from the office. And I was like, okay, this is like you know, uh, the evolution of the idea of, of the office as home and soon, like what is going to be, you know, the difference between that. And I think even since COVID, that idea has been exasperated because more of us have started working from home and that line between work and home has started to blur more and more and more. Um, that's hard, but I think, you know, back then, you know, this idea of home, yeah, it was really about home should be safe and secure and it should not be work. Um, and that idea that it should not be work, that it should not be the workspace is um, nobody's sleeping in the restaurant, right? Like I, I go back to the restaurant again. 
it's not their home. They might spend a lot of time there, but when they leave, they leave. And, um, but it provides a, a sense of uh, support that maybe a family might at a home, you know, by just giving you that camaraderie that you get around the meal. Oh, I think it's very persuasive, persuasive for me. And talking about home, you also mentioned in your book that being at home is both a methodology and a subject of study in your book. So could you, I'm very curious about this strategy. So could you please tell us more about it? Like what does being at home means as a fieldwork strategy? Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot about this like um, when I started to do my fieldwork because I was going home to do fieldwork, right? I was not going to a country where I needed to learn a different language. I was studying essentially my own culture, my own people. Um, but I find my own culture, you know, North American and Western Europe uh, to be very strange sometimes. And so for me, there was this whole idea of convincing, you know, my committee at the university that um, doing fieldwork at home wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just thinking about anthropology in a different way. Um, looking at, you know, making the mundane what is that quote? I forget what it is exactly. Um, but you know, it's making the everyday strange and the every and the strange every day. And there were just aspects of corporate culture in North America that I that I felt like were just very out there. I was really inspired by Laura Nader um and a piece that she wrote a long time ago, which was called I think Anthropology Up or Studying Up is the name of the article, where she was like basically stating this idea that um as anthropologists, we should take more interest in looking at um, aspects of our own culture and society that we don't fully understand and that could use an anthropological lens. I think some of the things that she talks about are politics or courtrooms or insurance companies um, as good examples. So I think this goes back to like where I got my initial idea for this whole thing, which was like a New York Times article. And I think if there's other aspiring anthropologists listening or, or anything like that, what I always try to tell students is that Keep, keep a folder on your computer, you know, of these articles that you read from the news, because sometimes those are like going to be bits and pieces of, of things that might give you an idea about a project, about a fieldwork site, or about a group of people that are doing something out of the ordinary or unusual to you, or interesting that you might, you know, be able to go and, and spend some time with those, those people. So yeah, Laura Nader was really the, the inspiration for this um, whole thing about studying up and being at home. A super helpful suggestion, and I think it will be very helpful for any anthropology in training to identify their focused project in the future. And here I want to, you know, turn our conversation to entitlement, because you mentioned in the book that your book can also be considered an ethnography on the everyday life of entitlement, the micro interactions that makes privilege seem normal and expected. I noticed you also quote Karen Hu's observations that corporations in today's world, whether in you know finance or in tech industry, try to create a post-college atmosphere, which means an atmosphere naturalizing everyday privilege. And you also mentioned in previous conversation of us about the tension between free food as a gift and a free food as a privilege, you know, and a naturalized privilege. Can you elaborate more on this point? Why would companies want to create this post-college atmosphere and to naturalize everyday privilege? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people entering into tech companies are coming straight out of college, especially at the engineering level and things like that. So keeping that sort of um, collegiate style atmosphere has a couple of advantages for the company. One of those might be that these people are still in their, these workers are still in their early twenties or, you know, mid twenties, maybe in something like that. So um, giving them access to free food and things like that is going to continue to fuel, you know, their energy levels, which are higher maybe than older workers. They're um, more eager to, to, to make a name for themselves and they're more eager to, you know, eager to maybe impress their boss and move up the corporate ladder. Um, and so all of those things combined kind of, I don't know, the, the whole idea though about giving like things like ping pong tables and stuff like that in office spaces, I didn't really focus on that a lot in, in the book because I don't really know what purpose they really achieve. Um, and I just couldn't quite place them, to be honest. Um, but this idea of entitlement um, did come back 
uh, to haunt me, you know, a little bit because I I think not not all of the people that I spoke with, but some of them, you know, after a while, what I realized is that if you constantly give somebody something for free, but then you want to charge them for it or you want to take it away, it's really hard to do that. So for example, in one of the offices, the food manager, program manager would send an email around sometimes if they were out of certain snacks or out of certain drinks or things like this. And sometimes she would get a lot of really negative comments about that. Um, or people would be upset that their favorite lunch wasn't being catered that week or that there weren't enough options for vegetarians. Um, I think the one of the classic cases of this is um, when somebody at Facebook decided that when Facebook was gonna do meatless Mondays, they were gonna protest by having a barbecue in the parking lot uh, with a lot of meat and, and things like this um, because they didn't want, they didn't think that the company should dictate whether or not they, they eat meat or not. So yeah, I think, you know, constantly giving somebody something for free can breed entitlement in any industry, in any type of situation. You know, I, I think about my dog, like if I just constantly give my dog treats all the time, <laughs> he just comes to expect treats all the time. And then I stop giving him treats and he gets mad and he barks and he whines and he like sits by the treat box and like this type of stuff. It's not really any different, right? We're, we're animals at the end of the day. And we, you know, we respond to to stuff like that. So um, yeah, this idea of entitlement really grew out of the fact that I started to witness some of this um, reactive nature, you know, to not having things and not having the right things. And that goes back to the idea of people choosing employers sometimes in Silicon Valley based on the food that they provide as opposed to the work that they're doing, because for some of those workers, as it was explained to me by an engineer, he was an engineer and for his, his job was not that different from one company to another. It was all using a different language to program something to, you know, create this piece of software and app, et cetera. So when he got job offers, he started asking around about what the food was like and based his, based his decision off the food that sounded the best to him. Because there are different different ideas about what food you know is yeah, offered. Yeah. There's different quantities. There's different. Some places don't give you dinner. Some places don't give you breakfast. Some places have good coffee. Some places have cheap coffee. Some places are all organic. Some places like it. There's a huge variety of of difference um, across the board out there in Silicon Valley and San Francisco. The rest of the world, I'm not entirely sure that you know that huge amount of option exists, but um definitely in California. Interesting, interesting. So if we go back a little bit to our discussion of gift, so I would say when you treat free free food or food perks as a form of gift, um, you may feel a little bit indebted when taking this food, drinks and snacks. But when you treat it as a right or entitlement, taking food from your company will be, you know, natural and very smooth, like you said before in your, you know, cases you mentioned. So in your book, you show us there is a kind of tension between the two attitudes towards food perks. And how do people you observe deal with this tension? And what can we learn from this phenomenon? No one thinks about it, really. Nobody really pays any attention to it. Um, maybe the, the the group of people that think about it the most are new employees. Um, if you're not used to having those perks yet, then if you're getting used to having them, um, that's an interesting space because all of a sudden, the one of the companies I was in, they said, you know, new employees sometimes gain 10 pounds because they're not used to having access to food and snacks and all this stuff all the time. Um, so it does take some temperament, you know, you do have to be a little bit, um, judicious about, about having access to all that stuff. Um, so yeah, this, nobody, I don't, I don't know if anybody outright told me I feel guilty for taking things, uh, or for taking snacks. Um, in fact, I would notice people on a Friday sometimes go into the, one of the, the companies in, in California, they would go into the snack sort of area and they would take a bunch of granola bars and some kombucha and stuff and put it in their backpack and then leave and go home and i asked the food manager about that and she said there's not really any rule against it but she wished people wouldn't use her snack area as like their weekend hiking trip supermarket basically right 
Um, but they felt entitled to take snacks and do what, whatever they wanted with them, which meant take them home on a Friday evening for the weekend. Oh. Um, yeah. Then, you know, there's this whole idea in offices that you shouldn't take office, like pens and staplers and stationery and like all this stuff home, right? Because you're stealing from the company. Um, but then what are they doing? You know, there's... The thing is that there was no policy. There was nobody policing the food. There was nobody stopping somebody when they left the building and saying, hey, why do you have, you know, six Cokes and 14 Cliff <laughs> Bars? That's awkward. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so yeah, people just get habituated to this and they think it's all going to be there. It's never ending. It's always going to, there's always going to be a supply of this stuff. So I'm just going to take it and, you know, yeah. nobody's going to stop me. I say this everyday entitlement is integral part of professionalization or the forming of the, you know, the work, the identity, you know, to embed it, to be a part of this company. So everyday entitlement is very, you know, an, an essential part of it. Yeah, uh, to some extent, you know, that's not, not everybody's doing that, but mm. some people are doing that and the rest of the people are just standing by and watching it happen. So you have, you know, I can't be the only one who noticed <laughs> that people were doing that and um, and things. So, yeah, there is this sort of entitlement that that grows. I think I don't think that people enter the companies with this idea of entitlement. But I think that after a period of time, you know, it just sort of becomes part of the workplace and the, the office culture. You know, I work for a large company, a corporation. I'm not in the head office, but when I am there, I don't have free snacks and I don't have free lunch. I don't have, I have free coffee and I have free water and that's it. And um, I think so the entitlement, I think that you get in a place like that where you're having to pay for things, is very different, right? What am I entitled to in that space? I'm not sure. I'm entitled to a clean bathroom and like a desk to work at and some pens and notebooks, you know, for, for work that I need to do, but I don't feel like I'm entitled to take lunch without paying for it. But as soon as you remove that payment, as soon as you remove any, any form of payment, then that mindset switches. Right. And I think, you know, if one of the suggestions that I had sometimes at the end of the book is, is if companies wanted to make employees, um, more respectful of these programs or just more thoughtful of them, they should charge them a very small amount of money. Exactly. Like it, exactly. What would be in essence insignificant, right? To to them. But then once you put a value on it, once you you place a value on it and, and somebody is actually paying for it, then that idea switches. You're no longer like entitled, but you become a customer or you become um yeah, there's just something that 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 switches in your mind, I think. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I think definitely people working in the tech industry and also people interested in this industry should read this book and to see how your conclusion actually are based on all these details and all these observations in the tech industry in your field work. So as we are approaching the end of today's podcast, the final question is, what projects are you working on now and what is next? So I know you are now an observant participant in the hotel industry does it bring you some differences or give you more insights on you know this industry and please share share with us yeah uh, hotels are endlessly fascinating places um they act you know they're not just a place for somebody to sleep but they're a place where somebody might have a wedding or they might have a meeting or they might um meet somebody for a drink or for dinner they're not they, they're a, a whole different host of activities are going on in hotels that we don't really consider on an everyday level. Um, and each one is different, even within the same town. I sort of think as each hotel has, is a microcosm, it's its own village. It has its chief at the top, the GM, and it has everybody else that are doing things to sort of make sure that he's happy and that the hotel functions and stays afloat. And um, so to that extent, I've, you know, have kind of an unlimited number of field sites now that I can work in. The challenge with this is to find the through line between each of these that connects to the head office and connects to the way in which we think about the company as a whole instead of each hotel as an individual. And um, 
that's the hardest part, I think, because we have hotels in other parts of the world and different cultures. We have hotels in countries where tipping is a thing and we have hotels in countries where nobody tips. We have, um, you know, I was just in Japan and in Japan, um, smoking is still a thing, but um, you can't smoke in hotel rooms, but the hotel I was in had a smoking room, which was just a room that was closed off by itself that if you smoked cigarettes or whatever, you could go in there and smoke. You don't find that in America um, or something like that. So for me, you know, it's just endlessly fascinating industry to work in as an anthropologist because there's, yeah, just so much. It's very rich with data. It's sometimes hard to pinpoint what my next project will be. But um, I think that it will have something to do with the hospitality industry and with hotels in general. And um you know, I've, I still like this idea of care and this idea of um, what of that of, and, the, and of home. And, you know, I kind of like to think about what a hotel represents to people um, because you are kind of cared for. You're provided a bed and a place to sleep and it's usually warm or cool. Um, there's food available. Um, you know, it's not a home, but it's also a, it's a temporary home. So this has been something that's been on my mind um, for the past few months. And um, I've been thinking about, but I'm always, you know, drawn back to ideas about food and things like that, too. So um, I don't really have any food projects running at the moment. But um, yeah, I think you can look for something around hotels and hospitality for me. In the, in okay. The <laughs> I'm very looking forward to it. And I hope you can find time and also energy to continue to produce many interesting observations and ideas about workplace, about food, about hotel. And if you have already had some of them published, get published, I'm always looking forward to chatting with you about it in the future. So yeah, exactly. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much for coming to today's podcast in New Books Network. Yeah, thanks a lot, Yadon. We appreciate it. <laughs> the pleasure is all mine. And today we discussed the new book by Jesse Dot. Feeding the Hosso, Free Food and Care Inside the Tech Industry, published by Lexingenberg in 2022. This book will be insightful and exciting for academic readers who are interested in food, work, labor, and global corporations. And also, if you work in the tech industry and you want some fresh perspective on your working environment, you wouldn't want to miss this book. Thank you for listening to New Books Network in Anthropology, and we will see you next time.